I mean, what I'm saying to people is, look, if you if you make enough money that you need to, you know, park some of your money in an investment that will be profitable in the future, then why don't you lease it to us for a dollar a year? And we will give you more goodwill and great publicity than you could ever pay for. Bring the arts back to San Francisco. That was P. Siegel. I'm Jeff. Welcome to Storied San Francisco, a weekly podcast where San Franciscans from all walks of life share their stories, and you get to know your neighbors. In this episode, P. talks about her return to the city. She immersed herself in North Beach art and intellectual circles, but ended up getting evicted. Then she found a place in the Western Edition, joined the Cacophony Society, and opened Café Proust. These days, Pia has turned her attention toward establishing affordable housing for artists, something she feels the city sorely needs, and we agree. Here's P. Of course, I was looking for a job, and so I came into the city every day, and I would just end up hanging around in North Beach uh, at the Trieste in the afternoon. What year would this have been? 78. Okay. Uh, and then um, around um, maybe six o'clock, uh, I would just move up the street, up Grant Avenue to the terrace of the Savoy Tivoli, which, you know, the Savoy Tivoli is one of the great losses of San Francisco um, cultural history because on the terrace of the Savoy Tivoli, there were you know, hundreds of, you know, intellectuals and poets and artists and um, uh, writers, you know, and the conversation there was always interesting, always. And also at the Trieste, it was almost, almost always pretty interesting. But Tivoli had music, did it not, also around that time? Uh, a little bit of punk rock kind it, of stuff? It had a theater in the very back, which burned down. After um, Allen Ginsberg and Peter Orlovsky gave their famous reading there, so um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it lost the theater part, but still, I mean, just the the culture uh, of of the bar was you know just fascinating. You didn't really need entertainment in those days because you had people with ideas, and <laughs> it was pretty exciting living there at that time what kind of um folks were you hanging out with around that time well you know it was a (laughs) it's actually a fascinating story about um the um social life of north beach because uh you know north beach is a small pond full of really smart people and uh at the time, you know, when I first started spending all my time there, it was um, it was not yet political. It was creative, it was intellectual, but it was not political. Was that where you're where you connected with Cacophony Society, or no? Actually, Cacophony didn't exist yet. Okay, um, but but there. Uh, 
um, predecessor, the Suicide Club, it did indeed. And uh, one of the people that I knew at um, on the Savoy Terrace uh, was a member of the Suicide Club. And I kept saying, introduce me. <laughs> and he said, no. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, but also I was deeply involved in other things um, in North Beach at the time. Um, I, uh, I was um, deeply engrossed in buying the old spaghetti factory when Freddie Koo put it up for sale. Okay. Uh, and that is another long story, which I won't get into now. Uh, but um, I lost the spaghetti factory, unfortunately. And at the same time, I got uh, an owner move-in eviction to my uh, flat, my North Beach flat that I paid $400 a month for. <laughs> and uh, uh, I looked for months for another place in North Beach. There was just nothing, nothing. And so I started looking at uh, other parts of town and found an ad for a 14-room, two-story flat in the Western Edition for $1,800. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I went to look at it. And uh, very soon thereafter, I moved in with four artist friends. That was Golden Gate and Baker? Uh-huh. Okay. 1907 Golden Gate. And that place really, um, I mean, it was... It was such a hub of stuff. It was, and it was bigger than all of the places I spent my life in in North Beach put together. It was you know, if you put my flat and the Savoy and the and uh, the Trieste into 1907 Golden Gate, you'd still have some room left over, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So it was just it was pretty wonderful, except for the fact that there was there were no neighborhood cafes in those days. But other than that, it was just, you know, extraordinary. It was uh, built by um, these two architect brothers, the Brown brothers, who um, uh, were two of the architects that worked on the rebuilding of City Hall after the earthquake and fire. And they built this building, Goldgate and Baker, for themselves. So um, it was grand, we had a back parlor that was all redwood, oh my God. Uh, you know, and uh, fireplaces in uh, front and back parlors, and uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. So, <clears throat> for several years of um, living at 1907, I still tried to find the Suicide Club. Right. But uh, I couldn't because it was a secret society. Right. Uh, And for good reason. I mean, because, you know, most of the things they did were, you know, not the sort of things you, you know, want to get out on the airwaves. (laughs) (laughs) Like on a podcast. Yes. (laughs) But I I love the idea that uh, everything that they did was... An exercise in challenging your fears. Mm-hmm. You know that sounded that sounded like a really good thing to do. To John me. told us, I I think it was 
suicide. It might have been cacophony about the the full dinner that they did on the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh yeah, that was an annual yeah. annual thing. Yeah, climbing everything in sight, literally. <laughs> right. I mean, I didn't I didn't do a lot of the uh, um, physically. Uh, challenging things because I have terrible depth perception <laughs> you know <laughs> but I mean the first uh, event that I went to um, was the uh, 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 midnight walking tour of the Oakland storm drains and you know John Law had to carry me over <laughs> a couple of rough patches so I decided you know like it was probably better not to endanger my fellow cacophonous <laughs> Doing, you know, <laughs> things that were graceful know. bow out. Yes. yes. But I mean, there were so many things to do. And the, the reason why I met Cacophony, um, you know, after trying so long to, to find Suicide Club, was that um, one of my housemates in that flat, Kevin Evans, the, the artist who did that um, painting over the door, uh, <laughs> Went to art school with uh, Carrie Galbraith, who was also one of the uh, editors of the Cacophony book. And uh, so he invited them to one of the thousands of massive parties we had in that 14-room two-story flat. Uh, And I'm standing in the back parlor talking to somebody at this party, and staring out at the um, the large bay window across the room, and I see a hand coming over the windowsill, and I am thinking, there is no fire escape out there. <laughs> and Seconds later, I see the head and torso of John Law climbing into my living room. (laughs) So uh, that was the night I joined Cacophony. (laughs) That's all it took. That's all it took. (laughs) I mean, he's very persuasive anyway. Yeah. 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 So, um, (laughs) uh, yeah. And then... uh, John started coming to our house almost every night and you know there were always there was always a crowd of people around the kitchen table you know discussing things making things drawing things mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh my um young artist roommates had all their uh, uh art school friends hanging out there they called they called themselves the art babies and John would take them on these wild excursions around the city in the wee hours of the night. Uh, and then, you know, so um, everybody in Cacophony just started hanging out there. Our door was unlocked for, for 20 right. years. Yeah. You know, yeah. we just let, you know, people came in whenever. <laughs> Why would you lock it? Exactly. I mean, you know, we were, we were, uh, we were safe for a lot of reasons. One was that the neighbors found us very entertaining. <laughs> all the, you know, all the black neighbors that had lived in that neighborhood for, you know, since after World War Two, <clears throat> they, um, they were always curious to see what sort of things we were going to carry in and out of the house, mm-hmm. and what sort of events we were doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And, you know, like they hadn't seen anything as offbeat and crazy as us since, uh, you know, since the last days of uh, the Harlem of the West, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's mm-hmm. just, uh, so we were we were their entertainment and uh you know they all watched out for us there was this one guy who um went up and down the streets on a bicycle Uh, i mean i i i knew he was selling drugs so that's what he was doing (laughs) the neighborhood was pretty pretty wild back in those days but he carried my groceries home for me all the time every time he saw me on the street carrying bags of groceries he uh he would pick them up and get them to my door for me. Adorable. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was pretty, it was very warm. Yeah. They were very, the neighbors were so uh, inviting and and uh, just fun to be around. And then, of course, you know, when Cacophony became a regular feature of the life of 1907 Golden Gate, um, we would come and go at all these weird hours dressed in costumes, you know, like today we're, um, uh, you know, 18th century uh, um, French aristocrats <laughs> doing a let them eat cake event where, <laughs> you know, we would uh, come out in um, um, clown costumes <laughs> Or whatever, <clears throat> Edwardian costumes for the all the priest events. You know, I come from a family where I was schooled in cuisine from an early age, and uh, I've always wanted to own a restaurant. Um, <clears throat> and I worked in the food business for years, um, mostly as a caterer. But you know, it, you know, when I was a lot younger, I was a waitress, and you know. I actually did a couple of years uh, bartending, too, or no, one year bartending. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I did a lot of dinner parties, and uh, you know, probably a hundred people said to me over the years, "If you ever open a restaurant, I'll invest." That's a nice thing to hear. It was a very nice thing to hear, and so. Um, one day I was leaving uh, 1907 and heading down um, uh, Baker Street to McAllister, and I saw that the um, the space of the corner across across McAllister was for rent. And because I'd lived in the neighborhood for a long time, I knew that it had been a restaurant in the past. I went and looked at the space, and it was big and really beautiful. Um with, uh, you know, the tall columns and windows on two sides, huge floor-to-ceiling windows on two sides of the building. And uh, so um, I wrote a business plan, and I called uh, a lot of friends, and I said, do you remember when you said, if I ever opened a restaurant, you'd invest? You said it, it was 100, right? You, they, they all get that. So... Uh, 19 people actually awesome. put in uh, money. Awesome. And then uh, all my cacophony friends and artist friends came in and made the place beautiful. Yeah. 
I mean, because everybody, you know, had some some amazing skill, you know, like, um, you know, producing um, uh, textured walls and uh, and um, color, you know, color uh, design and and then we raided everybody's parents' garages and attics for sofas. Yeah. And we bought all these old tables. And this is one of the tables from Cafe Proust, actually. Um, You know, Proust wrote about a lot of themes. There are a lot of themes that go through the 3,000 pages of of, um, In Search of Lost Time. And one of them was Venice, because he loved Venice so much and spent a lot of time there. And uh, this was the one table that the most people asked to sit at. Every th- every table at Cafe Proust had a theme. Um, you know, male-female relationships, s- the seaside, um, uh, Paris, uh, you know, whatever. So um, this was the only table I kept. I tried to refinish it after it started cracking. <laughs> Did a terrible job. So the name of the cafe wasn't just random. The cafe was more or less Proust theme. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, it came from um, a cacophony event, actually. Um, one, of, one of my housemates at 1907 said to me one day, um, oh, I said, it's your, your birthday's coming up. What do you want? What do you want to do? And he said, I want you to read Proust with me <laughs> because I can't do it alone. <laughs> And uh, I said, oh, I don't know. I've tried to read Proust. I don't know. (laughs) And he said, oh, it'll be fun. Ten pages a day. We can do it. And then he suggested that we put it in the Cacophony newsletter. So uh, we did. We actually got 40 people to read Proust. And uh, after that... Um, I started reading every book I could about Proust. I have quite a collection, actually, because I was so fascinated by his insight, his brilliance, you know. And then uh, and this this all happened right around the time when zines became immensely popular. 90s. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so... Um, I launched a zine called Proust Said That because after reading Proust, almost every conversation I had with anybody, I would end up saying, you know, Proust said that. <laughs> or Proust said that, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so I started doing this zine towards the, I guess I had done eight issues or seven issues when uh, I found the restaurant and, you know, thinking about what to call it, there was no, there was only one choice. Yeah. It all came together. Yes. Also, cafes used to have sofas. I miss that. Yeah, we had, yeah. we had sofas. So what are you doing now? <laughs> well, um, you know, as I said, of course, uh, you know, I grew up in San Francisco in a time when, it was full of artists, and it was such a stimulating, uh, fascinating uh, place to live and be. 
And throughout my life, I've always been surrounded by people who make art. I mean, you know. <laughs> but uh, starting around 1995, my artist friends started leaving town. Now I have about half a dozen artist friends who still actually live in the city. And it was at one of the events that I did in, I think, 2014. It was uh, the annual wake for Marcel Proust, because <laughs> he died on my birthday. <clears throat> and I make a, I used to make a full-size Proust, dead Proust cake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, awesome. at, at this particular event in 2014, there were so few people left to celebrate the death of, uh, the anniversary of Proust's death that I made a small cake. So, at that event, uh, one of my friends who lived under me at 1907 and still had his flat there, you know, years after I had moved out, came into the event and said, I, you know, I just got an order to move an eviction, and uh, I'm moving to Kansas. Hmm. And I thought, what has happened to this city? You know, a city that built its reputation for bohemian charm. You know, and now has no room for bohemians. I mean, you know, there's, a, you know, the artists who made it beautiful, uh, you know, <laughs> nobody cares if they stay or go. That's ridiculous. So uh, I talked to some friends about it and um, they said, you know, you should start a, a nonprofit for, you know, an artist housing project. So um, we did. We started a nonprofit uh, called Bohemia Redux. <clears throat> and one of my board members, who's actually a, a, a member of the San Francisco Symphony, said to me, I don't like that name. <laughs> but I'd already filed the papers. And she said, how do you expect me to promote a project that has a name that I can't pronounce? <laughs> Oh, but, you know, anyway, I hung on to it for a while. And then um, uh, I realized how hard it is to run a nonprofit. You need a staff, you know. It, you, you know, you can't do it while working in the gig economy as a freelance writer, you know. And so um, we regrouped under the new name Art House, mm -hmm. which, you know, as, as everyone has said, well, it actually says what you are. Yeah. And uh, we have a fairly unusual business model, which in fact is really hard to fit into the traditional um, nonprofit funding uh, patterns. Mm -hmm. Because what we're really proposing is that um, we partner with people who buy real estate solely for investment purposes and leave it empty. I mean, we just found out that there are 38,000 empty units in the city, mm -hmm. you know, that people, in buildings that people bought for the very solid investment of real estate in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And it's just sitting there empty. Yeah. 
and also the city owns lots of property that it they is should not own using. more and you know they're holding on to it because because why <laughs> because if they give it if they gave it to me to use for artist housing then they wouldn't have it to give to their you know wealthy friends for whatever so mm-hmm. i don't know why but anyway the point is that um you know it's an unusual model and I mean, what I'm saying to people is, look, if you if you make enough money that you need to, you know, park some of your money in an investment that will be profitable in the future, then why don't you uh, lease it to us for a dollar a year? And we will give you uh, more goodwill and great publicity than you could ever pay for. Bring the arts back to San Francisco. Use your investment money to give the city back what it is sorely missing. I mean, you know, when you see these articles coming out now about how San Francisco has lost its soul, well, yeah, it's lost the people that made it so charming. So, you know, I'm saying, look, if you want to invest in something that will do wonders for your social standing then um, this is it. (laughs) And of course, I'm just at the beginning now uh, because um, we have have just started under the new name and uh, we don't even have a website yet. (laughs) I'm looking for people uh, who would like to get involved, but um, everything takes so long. We have wonderful... um, Physical sponsorship from Intersection from the for the Arts, uh, which you know is historically uh, you know wonderful uh, support for the arts community, but they haven't been able to stop the uh, displacement. So when I went in there and said I want to stop the displacement, and in fact I want to I want to restore it, uh, the director said, you know that's a very noble pursuit. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I am at the beginning again. Is there anything else you want to throw out? Uh, uh, how, how can people listening to this help? Like, you, you, you mentioned a couple times, you're like, if anyone wants to join, but specifically, maybe. Yes. Well, um, you know, needless to say, uh, this is one of the uh, appalling parts about, uh, you know, being in the nonprofit world is that you always have to remind people that they can donate <laughs> and that we need money, you know, because we need equipment, we need promotional materials, we need a, a website, <laughs> lots of things. And so if if anyone would like to donate... Uh, they can donate to Intersection for the Arts slash Art House. That's capital A-R-T, capital H-O-U-S-E, one word in the modern form. <laughs> so, um, so, and of course, any, uh, any contributions to the effort are immensely appreciated. That was P. Siegel. Join us next week when we'll hear from Irish Skateboards founder, George Rocha. Music for Story at San Francisco is by Otis MacDonald. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. The show is hosted and produced by me, Jeff Hunt. 
Our website is storiedsf.com, where you can browse more than 100 episodes. Check out all of our live events and visit our store to help support us. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to the show on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. If that's Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please do us a favor and rate and review what we do. And if you have any feedback for us or suggested guests, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.